0: Hi, this is Ben Lola back to the Bible Canada. Who were the Magi? Were they really three kings of the Orient? Well, on today's program, Dr. Newfeld continues this series, Why Christmas, as we explore more about the people who were at the scene of Jesus' birth. So let's turn in our text to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and listen to a message called, Why the Magi?
1: Children are by nature profoundly curious, and so the young ones make a perpetual nuisance of themselves to us adults by constantly asking why. One comedian had a funny routine wherein he asked the question, why is there air? It was meant to poke fun at the crazy questions of little children that were constantly being asked. But even while we've all been tired of children's constant why questions, a much sadder reality happens when we no longer ask the why questions at all, and we simply accept things the way they are without digging deeply into their reasons. See, nowhere is that felt more than at Christmas, where the very familiar stories of the birth of Jesus are easily told without probing and questioning and wondering, why are things that way? And today I want, in this why series, to ask another why question. What's so significant about the Magi? Why did they show up? Why did Matthew take pains to tell us about them? And is there more to them than simply putting them in a Christmas crash? You know, at the outset, let me answer the question before we begin. The account of the Magi tells us that there is and always will be a universal search for God. There are many people who live around us, many of whom have never gone to church, but they are hungry to know God. Isaiah the prophet predicted that with the coming of the Messiah, all the nations would be drawn near to God. In Isaiah 60, verse 3, he says, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. How tragic then when some of us have wrongly assumed that no one's interested in the gospel anymore. See, I'm here to tell you that's wrong. Over a lifetime of ministry, the overwhelming sense that I have is amazement at how many unlikely people have found their way through to the gospel, and the magi certainly fit into that category. So let's read the account from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born a king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, and assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. Let's begin by noticing that this is an unlikely gathering of people, if there ever was one. The first Christmas brought together the most unusual people, all with different agendas, brought together for only one reason, that is the birth of Jesus. Let's look at each of them in turn. The first and most obvious group are the Magi. My Bible, and I'm using the ESV translation, calls them wise men. Now, because we've all sung the Christmas hymn, We Three Kings, a great many people have assumed they are kings from the Orient somewhere, and that there were three of them, and that according to our Christmas creches at home, they showed up at just the same time as the shepherds, making a wonderful contrast between the humble and the rich, all who came to see baby Jesus staring at him as he lies in a humble feeding trough. Now, I don't delight in bursting balloons, but you're about to hear some popping sounds. Our fairy tale picture of Christmas is wrong at a number of points. Look carefully at Matthew 2, verse 11. There, Matthew says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh notice several things. First, the text does not say that there are three of them. In fact, technically, it doesn't even say they offered the Christ child only three gifts, only that it says that the gifts they offered were of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Secondly, did you notice where they meet? Matthew tells us that they went into the house not into a barn or a cave. And it would seem that time had passed between the meeting with the shepherds and however much time that was. Clearly, Mary and Joseph have moved from a barn or a cave where the the shepherds met with them to a house. There are even those who argue that since Herod would give the order to kill the boys in Bethlehem that were two years old and younger, that Jesus might now have been as much as a year old at the time. But I actually doubt that. And the final balloon to burst is this. Whatever these men were, they were most certainly not kings. In fact, Matthew never calls them kings. He he simply calls this group of people Magoi or Magi. The word is a root word from which we get the word magician. The most likely answer to who these people were is found in Daniel chapter 2, verse 2, which tells us that in the court of the king of Babylon, there were, and I'm quoting, so the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. See, back in Daniel's time, each one of these groups of people focused on a very specific practice of Babylonian occult religion. In all probability, the people that surrounded the ancient imperial court of Babylon were very shrewd people who were able to do miracles either by sleight of hand or by demonic power. The magicians were one of four groups of people who surrounded the king who belonged to a priestly class, learned the sacred writings of the occult, and specialized in conjuring up spells. Now, by the time of Christ Matters had changed, Babylon had been defeated and was no longer a world power with a feared king. They no longer had four specialized groups, that is, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. But magi became a more generalized term for people who were interested in dreams and astrology and magic and books thought to contain mysterious references to the future. Some of them were liars and cheats, and others seem to have been on a quest for truth, and several things ought to be noted about this group. First of all, the Bible roundly condemns their activity. Leviticus 20, verse 6 says, If a person turns to mediums and wizards whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Secondly, the prophet Isaiah had prophesied that this group would not be able to save Babylon in the day of their disaster. So in Isaiah forty-seven thirteen and 14, speaking to Babylon, it says, "'You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you, those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you.'" Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this, no fire to sit before. Indeed, that's precisely what happened. When Babylon fell, it was Daniel, a prophet of God, who had predicted the fall of Babylon. The ancient Magi had been completely ineffective. Daniel, the prophet of God from Israel, had completely discredited them, and with that, they were toppled. But the third thing ought to be mentioned about this group. It's the influence of Daniel upon them. Daniel chapter 2, verse 48 says, Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. I do not think we can underestimate the effect of Daniel and of other godly Jews on this group. Some hated Daniel, no doubt. Others admired him and learned from him. But in time, some of the Magi must have come to be interested in the God of Israel, and many of them had come to be fascinated by the Jewish hope of a Messiah that a king of Israel would rule the earth. And furthermore, They had come to learn a prophecy of Numbers 24, verse 17. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So this company of men saw a star. And they were men who were, to a large part, a group of men who had no business showing up before the Christ child. And furthermore, they did not follow the star to Bethlehem, at least not initially, Rather, they saw a star in the east and must have assumed that this had something to do with the Jewish hope. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they didn't know what to do. They would have gone through the streets and every public gathering place, asking where the king was to be born. And their presence in the city, no doubt, caused quite a stir. News about this was heard by everyone, and that news would have reached King Herod himself. This account has, has often been misunderstood. Did the Magi use their magic arts to discover where Jesus was? And the answer is most certainly no. The star they saw did not reaffirm their magic arts. Rather, it was a sign that came to them from the witness of the Jews, the people who knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people who had a book. And that book contained a revelation of the prophets of Yahweh. And that book led them. To understand that a Messiah would come. And the Magi arrived. The only way they found the way to Bethlehem is because the Bible teachers in the city of Jerusalem told them where to go. So when we come back, we're going to further trace this most interesting account.
0: Who really were the Magi? As we begin to uncover this second group of people who are witnesses to the birth of Christ, much is to be learned or perhaps relearned about them. Many of us might presume that these were three kings of the Orient, as made popular from The Christmas Carol, but we're finding that the biblical account actually points to a different group, one that is first described in the Old Testament in the story of Daniel under the rule of Babylon. So why were the Magi there, and for what purpose? Well, we'll learn more after the break. Thanks for listening today. You know, through this series, we've been trying to get back to rediscovering several important facts about Christmas. These facts like where Jesus was born, who was there first to see Him, and so on, are ones we as adults can take for granted. Why Christmas is a great way to see what happened through the lens of a deeper, childlike curiosity. Well, this month you can order a copy of the series on CD, Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld.
1: Please remember that the birth of Jesus brought together the most unlikely people and the results were explosive. There are what I am assuming to be a large group of Magi from the region of Babylon making inquiries in Jerusalem. These men are convinced that a great king of the Jews has been born. They have heard from faithful Jews about a Messiah, and they have arrived to worship. And by the way, to the answer of why Magi, we must conclude that it's still what Jesus does today. He draws people not from need and clean and upright backgrounds. He drew tax collectors and and prostitutes and and Roman soldiers and a Syrian Phoenician woman and people known for gluttony and excess and people of shady backgrounds all the time. You know, for those of you who only want the best of people in your churches, uh, the story of Jesus must be frustrating. Because Jesus brings together rogues and sinners, and of that group, some find their way to his salvation. Now, the second player in this unlikely saga is King Herod. Historians call him Herod the Great. Herod had been appointed as king over Israel in about 40 BC by the Roman Senate. He he was not a Jew. In fact, he was an Idumean, a descendant of the Edomites or a descendant of Esau. Because he was not a Jew, the Jews never accepted him, despite the fact that he had done major work on their temple. Now, Herod was an exceptionally brilliant leader, but also an extremely cruel man. He was willing to do whatever it took to hold on to power, and in order to get the Jews to accept him, he he took a Jewish wife, but, but he then had her murdered when he no longer needed her. He also murdered his two sons from this Jewish wife after they complained about the death of their mother. And he also regularly removed high priests, contrary to Jewish law, and whenever a high priest did something that upset him, he simply deposed him and put someone else in his place. He had one of the Jewish high priests murdered when he suspected that he was stirring up the Jews against him. See, it is told that when Herod lay on his deathbed, perhaps a year after the incident with the Magi, that it occurred to him that the Jews would be celebrating his death, so he and his men gathered together the leading Jews from the city of Jericho and confined them to guard. The minute he breathed his last, his men slaughtered all the men of Jericho so that the Jews would mourn and not celebrate when he died. So, in Herod, is a brilliant leader and builder whose buildings are still Seen in Israel today, but he's also a brutal butcher who would kill anyone who challenged his power. Do you think he would notice when the Magi showed up? Well, you bet he would. Now, the third group of people at the meeting mentioned in verse 4 were the chief priests and the teachers of the law. There was only one chief priest, so technically it seems wrong to speak of chief priests. But one retained the title even after one had finished one's office, or in this case Herod had deposed them, so all past chief priests would have been there that day. The chief priests were always members of the Sadducees. The teachers of the law, on the other hand, were Pharisees. Now, these two groups had deep theological disagreements. Indeed, they hardly tolerated each other. I don't doubt that Herod had both groups there to keep each side from tricking him. Herod would have known if he had both groups there, they wouldn't gang up against him, but he could get the truth of where the king would be born and how badly he wanted to know the truth. You know, what an amazing meeting must have happened that day in Jerusalem. They were the Magi who were condemned by the law of God for their occultic connections. Herod, the mass-murdering king appointed by Rome, the Sadducees, who tried to appease Rome and were generally fairly wealthy, and the Pharisees, who were waiting for the Messiah to overthrow the whole lot of these people who were gathered in that room. You know, that first Christmas really did bring together the most unusual people, all with very different agendas surrounding the birth of Jesus. And that brings us back, To the question of why the Magi. God could have so overseen that any other number of people or any other unlikely people group could have shown up. Why this band of people with their root system in occultic religions that are roundly condemned in the Bible? You know, on our recent tour to the Holy Land, we had opportunity to visit the ruins of the ancient city of of Caesarea Philippi. Now, that city has ancient roots that, that seem related to Baal worship. But at the time of Jesus, it had become a center for the worship of the Greek god Pan, depicted as a half-goat and half-man deity who plays the flute. Now, the myths surrounding Pan include highly sexualized, very pornographic accounts. But Caesarea Philippi also contained a number of other sites for the worship of pagan deities. It was a Roman occult city located in Israel. And these pagan temples in Caesarea Philippi were built up the side of a mountain, temples built upon a rock. There was a cave nearby that was often referred to by the Jews as the gates of hell. And according to Matthew 16, verse 13, Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi and there asked his disciples a question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? He had taken them on a three-day walk from the Sea of Galilee just to ask that question. And he took them to a city that exemplified all that was satanic in this world. And of course, the real question was who they thought he was. And Peter replies, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds by telling him that flesh and blood did not reveal that to him, but rather his father who was in heaven. And then with that revelation comes a startling statement standing within the vicinity of the place where pagan temples were built upon a rock and where a cave referred to as the gate of hell stood. Jesus said, and I tell you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, it's quite possible that Jesus meant that he would build his church on top of the pagan monuments of the world and utterly overthrow them, and the gates of hell would be defeated in his wake. Indeed, the temple of Pan now lies in ruins, but the church of Jesus continues to grow and become a sacred temple of the Lord, even in pagan places. And that brings me back to this amazing story of the Magi. The wonder of Christmas is that it draws the most unlikely of people. Herod rejected the king entirely and would have killed him if he could have. The theologians who knew that the prophecy of Micah indicated that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem didn't even bother to journey the 10 kilometers over there, but seemed to have had no more interest than the happy thought that the pagan magi were going away. And it's at this point in the account that something altogether miraculous happens. Up until now, the Magi have seen an unusual star and have journeyed to Jerusalem in order to find answers. But now, according to Matthew 2 verse 9, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. In some fashion, and Matthew never quite tells us how, you know, was there a miraculous shaft of light from the star that guided them, or was it in some other fashion? I mean, we don't know, but we do know that at this point, God himself miraculously undertakes bringing these men to the place where the young Jesus was. And then as if the miracles up to that point were but a small thing comes the greatest one of all. I can only imagine the scene as they knock on the door and try to explain to an astonished Mary and Joseph exactly why they're there. And when they are invited into the house, they see the child, and and according to verse 11, they simply fall down. I'm assuming they lie prostrate on the floor and worship the child. See, the Magi represent for me the surprising results of the gospel. The most unlikely of people, taken from every nation, tribe, and language, people burdened by the kind of sins that we would think makes them unacceptable for the king, are to our astonishment and surprise, found in a position of worship, prostrating themselves in reverence before this one. So why magi? I think the answer has everything to do with the kind of church that Jesus would build and the kind of people he would draw and the kind of lives he would change and transform. The Magi account tells us that this gospel will do the most surprising of things, and in truth, is that not the wonder of it? I know that Christ reached out to me, and so many of you can say the same thing. Amazing
0: Grace. A real encounter with the living God, even the baby Jesus, changes everything. I think this is one major element we can take away from this story of the Magi and their journey to see the King, the Christ. After this study, we come to appreciate the unlikelihood of this group of people coming to and then worshiping Jesus. Were they not part of a spiritual movement that the Bible specifically condemns? Yet God amazingly brought them to see the baby. He led them to follow the star that would guide them to Bethlehem. And in a sense, he is leading people from all walks of life and from all religions to discover who Jesus is. Isn't that part of the miracle of Christ's coming to the earth? I hope that this study today has given you a new depth of wonder regarding the appearance of the Magi in the Christmas story. Don't miss our teaching tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld addresses the question of why Jesus was born in a manger. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. At Back to the Bible Canada, we have a dream. A dream that one day spiritual revival will once more sweep across our nation through the power of God's Word and the good news of the Gospel. That's what we strive for as we teach and proclaim what the Bible says every day through radio, online, print, and much more. But why? Dr. Neufeld has stated the Bible tells the story of the one true God who determined to declare His glory in creating, redeeming, and glorifying a chosen people through His Son, Jesus Christ. A profound truth indeed. It is one story that we must continue to tell because it is the greatest story of all. And yet, as you know, and I know, many have never heard this story. Millions of Canadians grow up in this day and age with no understanding of the one true God and His desire to grant them new life through His Son. So that's why we do what we do as a ministry, leading people closer in their walk with Jesus every day and enabling others to hear the truth for the very first time. Today, you can help us carry on this great task as we seek to meet our year-end goal and propel us into another fruitful year of ministry in 2016. Today we're working to raise $390,000 by December 31st, and we're praying that our listeners and supporters will help us make this happen. Together we can do this, so you make a financial commitment today. A gift of any amount will go so far. To give online, please visit backtothebible.ca or call us even right now at 1-800-663-2425. That's one 663 2425